bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the, the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord.
took place many years ago, will you also apply it to our lives personally? In your work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. How in the world did this turn out so badly for Jesus? How is it that what started out with such enthusiasm and excitement and optimism ended up on such a down note? How is it that such a huge crowd dwindled down to just a handful of people? Well, we need to answer that question today because it has implications for your life and mine, massive implications for our lives. So take the small group, small group, take the study guide, says SG here, so take the study guide. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 
One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was to the, at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum <coughs> seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he, give, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir... Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. They listen to it. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. And how about a round of applause for Todd? Helping us set a brand new record today. Well, what an amazing and confounding passage of Scripture, and I'm thinking we need to pray before we dive in. So let me do that for us. And so, Lord God in heaven, now would you, through your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to what took place many years ago, and will you also apply it to our lives personally? Do your work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How in the world did this turn out so badly for Jesus? How is it that what started out with such enthusiasm and excitement and optimism ended up on such a down note? How is it that such a huge crowd dwindled down to just a handful of people? We need to answer that question today because it has implications for your life and mine, massive implications for our lives. So take the small group, or small group, take the study guide, it says SG here, so take the study guide out of your worship folder, or take your small group out of your worship folder if you want to try that, you can track with me. We need to get the time frame here 
setting for this chapter. Uh, in verse 4, the writer John tells us, he says, the annual Passover feast is near. Now, he's already mentioned one other Passover back in chapter 2. So at least a year has passed since Jesus began his public ministry. And a lot has happened during that time, right? Including the Sabbath day healing of the lame man that we saw last weekend, that Pastor Brian unpacked that story for us in chapter 5. And really, that incident was a turning point for Jesus. It was a turning point in how he was viewed by the establishment, by the religious establishment of his day, because they realized through the, the dialogue that ensued, they realized what Jesus was actually claiming for himself, and they didn't like it one little bit. From then on, they pretty much soured on Jesus, and were actually starting to plot how they could take him out, how they could have him killed. And now here in chapter 6, things are just getting worse. And when I read this, it really seems to me that Jesus was deliberately doing it. He was deliberately escalating the conflict between them with his rhetoric, his inflammatory rhetoric. In so doing, he, he broadens the chasm, not only between he and the leaders, but now also between he and the people, at least the folks who lived up in Galilee, up in that region. And so this is a long chapter. Let me break down what's in here. There's really four scenes. First, imagine Jesus on a mountainside with a huge crowd. It says there were 5,000 men. Wherever you have 5,000 men, you probably have at least 5,000 women and a bunch of kids. Somebody estimated maybe 20,000 people. So the amount of people that are in the Schottenstein Center right now, think about that size crowd gathered around Jesus, and they're hungry. Go figure. Jesus, little boy is brought to him who has a sack lunch with him, five loaves and two small fish. Jesus takes it and creates enough food to feed the entire throng of people with leftovers. And that stirs up the crowd, right? The giddy crowd, their bellies are now full and they call for his coronation. That's verses 1 through 15. They're saying, let's make this guy our king. I mean, someone who will provide us with an endless buffet? Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's what we want in our next ruler. People haven't changed too much, have they, through the years? That's the first scene. Second scene is that evening when his disciples now set out by boat to cross the Sea of Galilee to a town called Capernaum and a fierce storm sweeps in and causes a lot of panic. And fear, but Jesus miraculously somehow walks across the choppy waters to come to their aid. He gets in their boat with them, he calms their fears, and he speeds them to their destination. That's verses 16 through 21. So a second miracle then, but this one kind of feels out of place, doesn't really seem to fit in with the theme of the rest of the chapter, which is really a commentary on the whole bread thing. So we need to understand why John stuck this in here, and, and we will. Third scene is the next day. Crowds wake up, start to assemble, start to gather, and guess what? They're hungry again. Funny how that works. And so they're looking for Jesus. They can't find him. And they think, oh, maybe he went over to Capernaum to meet up with his disciples over there. And so they head over there too in hopes that Jesus will supply them with another free meal. It's like endless Panera all day, every day. That's what they're hoping for. 
That's verses 22 to 25. And then scene four, the people do track him down. They find him in the synagogue in Capernaum. And it's there that Jesus proceeds to engage them in a long dialogue that ends up turning many of them against him so that only a small, tiny little remnant is left at the end of the day. That's verses 26 through 71. So think about it. Things really went south, right? Or did they? Let me ask, did things go horribly bad or did things go beautifully? Did things go really poorly or did things go perfectly according to plan? And my answer would be yes. (laughs) Yes. From one perspective, the day was a complete disaster. But from another standpoint, it all happened just as it needed to, and I want us to see both vantage points today. So first, let's think about how things sure appeared to be deteriorating rapidly. What caused this once-adoring crowd of, of fans, of admirers, to become so disenchanted and disillusioned with Jesus? I think there are many reasons why things seem to turn out so badly. First, It seems to me that it was because Jesus kept provoking the people. He kept provoking them with increasingly perplexing claims. And and when you read this account, it sure looks like Jesus was doing it on purpose. He certainly wasn't trying to ingratiate himself with, with the folks there. It almost seems like he wanted to stir up opposition. His language grew increasingly provocative. And finally, in verse 53, he kind of pushed him over the edge when he said, look, if you really want life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, what? Are you into cannibalism, Jesus? Seriously? What are you talking about? But he didn't back down or back off or even try to clarify it. This was so offensive to people. Still a reason, I believe, why many people turn away from Jesus. Then there's a second reason that the crowd became disenchanted with him because, number two, he was impugning their motives for coming after him, for finding him, for seeking him. When they did locate him that next day, it says in 626, he answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You want to make people mad? Excuse me. You want to make people mad? Impugn their motives. Challenge their motives. Call their motives into question. That'll usually do it. And so he looks at at the people and he says, you just want more food. That's why you're here. You're not really interested in what I have to say or learning the truth from me. It's really just about me filling up your bellies again, isn't it? And so he was exposing what was in their hearts, wasn't he? He was exposing their sign-seeking as very self-serving, very short-sighted, and and certainly flawed, and it stung. Didn't feel good to have their motives challenged. It doesn't feel good, does it? And they resented him for it. Then we also see that their frustration was compounded, number three, because Jesus refused to allow himself or his power to be used by people to merely satisfy their fleshly appetites. You see, it was becoming apparent to them that Jesus wasn't so much about satisfying their physical appetites as he was about satisfying their deeper cravings. 
He didn't just want to give bread. He wanted to be bread. He wasn't mainly interested in just nourishing their bodies. He came, he says, to nourish their souls. You see, they'd found Jesus to be quite useful to them. But apparently Jesus wasn't much jazzed about being used. And by the way, do you think there are any people today who just want to use Jesus for their own purposes? Just try to get Jesus to fulfill their desires, their fleshly desires for more money or more comfort or pleasure or success or an easier life? I don't think this human tendency to use Jesus was confined to the first century, do you? I think it runs rampant in our day. As a pastor, I want to say to you, we need to be on our guard as believers and and alert to those who want to promote Jesus for his utilitarian value as merely being useful for improving our lives. And from this text, it seems that Jesus is disgusted with that, with being treated like some magical genie. In fact, he would have none of it. Jesus aims to be more, much, much more for us than that. I think there's a fourth reason for his decline in popularity. Number four, because Jesus continued to puncture their pride. Punctured their pride in their religion, their performance-based approach to pleasing God. Imagine how disconcerting his reply in verse 29 must have been to them. He just instructed them in verse 27, he said this, Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? That sounds like a performance-based religion, doesn't it? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe. Believe in him whom he has sent. The work that God requires is for you to believe. Labor hard to believe. Don't put all your effort in trying to get me make you more wonder bread. <laughs> it won't last. You want something to work on? You're into works? You want something to work on? Work on believing better. Expend effort to stop trusting in your own works And trust rather in me and in my work. And hearing that did not make them happy. Their whole religious system, understand this, was built around works, around keeping the rules and doing the supposedly right things to feel good about themselves and earn God's acceptance and God's favor. You know, Jesus, it bothered them because Jesus didn't sound like their other rabbis, their other teachers. I I think Jesus was like, Fingernails on a chalkboard to them. They're like, we don't like this guy. We don't like how he sounds. We don't like what he's talking about. He's undermining our whole way of thinking and living. Jesus bothers us. Another thing that bothered them, number five, was that he kept claiming that he and his father were superior to Moses. And there are other Jewish forefathers. And you've got to understand that the Jews of that era were hung up on Abraham and on Moses. Did you know that? I mean, they were like the rock stars of their religion. The founders of Judaism. Don't mess with Moses. They revered him, claimed to follow him. 
But here this young 30-something upstart preacher kept talking about Moses in ways that got under their skin. Like back in chapter 5, verse 45, he'd had the gall to say that on the day of judgment, Moses was going to be their accuser. That didn't go over very well. Then in verse 46 of chapter 5, he said, look, if you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. And here in verse 32, he basically says, you think it was Moses who gave you that manna that came down from heaven back in the day? You, you think that came from Moses? Think again, it wasn't Moses, it was my dad, it was my father in heaven. And right now, he was saying, my father is offering you bread once again. A, a kind of bread that is far superior to anything Moses could ever provide. And so they felt like he was downgrading their hero, like to a status lower than, than him and lower than his father, and, and it just didn't set well. And speaking of his father, that was another burr in their saddle. Number six, he kept claiming that God was his father. Like, my dad is God, and he sent me here from heaven. I lived in heaven, and he sent me here. Over and over again, Jesus would say this dozens of times here in the book of John alone, like here in verse 33, where he said, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So it says, verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know you, Jesus. We know your family. What are you talking about? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? It just irked them to no end. As did the next reason. He kept insisting, number seven, that everybody's eternal destiny hinged on their response to him. Understand this about Jesus. Jesus sincerely believed that he was the only way to God. He believed that. He believed that he was the only way to know God, the only way to be with God. There was no other way in his mind. Belief in him was it. Listen again to his words. Verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. This sounds so narrow, so exclusive, doesn't it? Believe in the Son, believe in the Son, believe in the Son. It is just not politically correct to go around saying things like that. And he didn't let up. Later on he would say, I am the gate, I am the door, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. <laughs> it's hard to escape the narrowness of Jesus' message. And it was irritating to people both then and now. Listen, as faithful believers in Jesus Christ, as those who take his name, who follow 
Christ. We need to resist getting swept into the modern current of cultural thought that says there are many ways to God. God's like at the top of a mountain, and there's many paths that you can go to take to get up to God. Oprah's message through the years has increasingly run counter to Jesus' message as she gets further and further away from her roots. So narrow. And everybody's got to make their own choice about this, right? Am I going to believe the exclusive claim of Jesus in the Bible or am I going to listen to some other voice or believe somebody else's opinion? Everybody's got to make their own choice about that. For me, I've made my choice. And if all that wasn't upsetting enough to his listeners, Jesus then pours some higher octane fuel on the fire. Number eight, by elevating his father's sovereignty in the work of salvation while still holding people responsible to believe. <laughs> want to make people uncomfortable? Want to make people squirm, even good church people? Stress God's sovereign choice in salvation over human autonomy and self-determination. That'll do it. That's a sure recipe for offending people. And that's what Jesus did here. Verse 37, you know, he's seeing the resistance to his message, and he says, well, all that the Father gives me will come to me. <laughs> you're not coming to me, you're not listening, you, you won't believe. Apparently, you're not one of the Father's gifts to me. Because all that the Father gives me will come. Verse 44, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Verse 65, that's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. What was the effect of those statements? Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. All right, Jesus, look, now you're overcooking my grits. No one can come to you unless the Father draws him? Seriously? What are you talking about? I want to believe that we humans are ultimately in control, that we're the deciding factor in things like this. Can you see why Jesus was losing delegates here by the minute, walking away? And we haven't even talked about that weird statement he made about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The bottom line was this. The crowds were fed up, disillusioned, and they were leaving. His own devoted followers were defecting, and his movement just seemed to be dissolving all in the space of a day. Why? Why? Well, number nine... Here's why. Because Jesus just wasn't turning out to be the kind of Messiah that the people had expected or wanted or hoped for. In short, Jesus was a disappointment. Imagine that. The Son of God was a disappointment. And here's my observation. I think that the real Jesus is a disappointment to many modern people too. And as a result, many people have created their own Jesus in their mind, the Jesus they want to believe in. And that Jesus is always sweet and always kind to everybody. He never makes any judgments about anybody, and he would never, never say the kinds of things that we see him saying here. 
The Apostle Paul warned people about the folly of creating your own Jesus. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he said, you know what, someone else comes along preaching another Jesus and you accept them readily enough. It's foolish to create your own Jesus in your mind just to make him easier to believe in. Why? Because that's not really him. It's a fake Jesus. It's fantasy. Listen, we need to be very careful to learn about the real Jesus from the Bible, accept the real Jesus, trust the real Jesus, teach our children about the real Jesus who is both meek like a lamb and ferocious like a lion. The false mental pictures of Jesus that people concoct in their own minds can't save anybody from anything. They're fake. They're not the real Jesus. Listen, this is the Jesus. This is the Jesus who is worth worshiping and following and living for and yes, even dying for. And those few remaining true disciples, that little remnant at the end, they would all end up doing just that. They would all end up dying for the real Jesus. And so yes, from the vantage point of worldly success, all of this turned out terribly for Jesus. Think about that scene at the end. Can you picture it in your mind? Jesus standing there. Everybody's left. There's just a small group of men standing around him. He's been abandoned, forsaken. And he looks into the, the eyes and the hearts of that tiny remnant that was left. And he asks, do you want to leave too? You've seen everybody else heading for the hills. Do you want to leave too? Do you know what? There's another perspective on this day. And that's the view from higher up, the view from 30,000 feet, the bird's eye view, because you see, none of this caught God by surprise. I mean, God was not up in heaven wringing his hands going, oh no, look at how they're treating my son, what am I going to do? In fact, it all happened according to plan. Remember this, Jesus came for what purpose? To die. Jesus came to die. He was born to die, in fact. That's why they wrapped little baby Jesus in swaddling clothes. Those were linen cloths that were typically used to wrap dead bodies. Born to die. Only Jesus' death could serve as the sacrificial atonement for the sins of the world. Dying was his mission and rising from the dead. So in God's plan, Jesus becoming more and more unpopular, Jesus becoming a disappointment to the people, Jesus incurring the wrath of the authorities was critical to him fulfilling his redemptive mission. Do you see this? Given the interpretation offered by the rest of the New Testament, this day went perfectly according to plan. That's how the early church saw it. There's this interesting prayer. It's recorded in Acts chapter 4. It's the, the church has begun, there's this band of followers, and in Acts chapter 4 it records a prayer where it says they prayed to the sovereign Lord, and part of their prayer goes like this, verse 27 of Acts 4, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
So now let's allow God to lift us up higher to see things from his view. And his view is that while this day certainly did go badly, it also went beautifully. While it went poorly for Jesus, it also went perfectly. You say, how so? How so? How were Jesus and his Father working together to orchestrate the accomplishing of the plan? Let me briefly suggest several ways. First, on this day, through these circumstances, God was working through his son's words and deeds to provoke the opposition and incite them against Jesus so they would eventually call for his execution as a blasphemer. Peter, who was there on this day, would later preach a sermon on the day of Pentecost. And from his sermon, you can tell that was his perspective. Listen to what he said on that day, uh, recorded in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, he's, he's talking to people who called for Jesus' crucifixion, okay? So this is later, fast forward. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. See what he's saying? Yes, God purposed it, but you did it. God orchestrated it, but you are responsible. You say, that is hard to wrap my mind around. It is. Because our brains are only about the size of a fist, you know? It is hard to comprehend. We have to make room in our minds, make room in your mind for God's sovereign activity and purposes achieved through the free and responsible choices of human beings. If, if you don't create that category in your mind, reading the Bible will drive you nuts. It's both. Now, this, this is Holy Week, isn't it? And on Thursday night, as Alan said, many of us who have registered online will be right here in this room, tables in this room, filling up this room, participating in a Jewish Passover meal, a reenactment of a, a Jewish Passover meal called a Seder, led by a Messianic Jewish pastor in town, our friend Howard Silverman. It's going to be great. I hope you'll be here. Then the next day, Friday, I hope hundreds of you will do what many of us do every year on Good Friday, and that's walk through this. This room will be transformed into the Stations of the Cross. Both of these observances serve as testaments to the reality that God has always had a plan for his people's redemption. And he gave foreshadowings of it in ancient times and glimpses and more glimpses of it. And then in the fullness of time, he orchestrated events in human history in such a way that it happened. Jesus said the things that he said there in the synagogue on that day so that the opposition against him would mount ultimately to fever pitch so that the events of Maundy Thursday would happen and so that the wonderful event of Good Friday would happen just as it was planned. And that's why we can say this went perfectly. 
Also, another reason we can say that, number two, is that Jesus, throughout these events, was continuing to reveal his glory through the miraculous signs that he performed so that those whom God was drawing to Christ would see and believe. Now listen, I think many people misunderstand miracles. I think many people misunderstand the purpose of miracles that Jesus did or that his apostles did. The purpose of miracles is so that the people whom God is drawing to Jesus will see the miracle as a sign pointing them to the miracle doer. So that they will entrust their whole lives to him and not somebody else. I don't think we're supposed to hear about Jesus walking on water or creating bread for 20,000 people and go, wow, that's awesome, and leave it at that. I think what we're supposed to do is say, wow, that was awesome. I'm going to give my whole life to that guy and not somebody else. That guy is the guy I'm going to live for. Now, got to see this. This is so good. The two miracles recorded in this chapter, I think, also show us something very glorious about the character of our Lord. See if you see it. Through these two signs, the bread and walking on the water, Jesus, number three, was demonstrating to the twelve that he would be faithful to provide for them in seasons of depletion and be present with them in seasons of loneliness and fear. This is beautiful. How I love this. Don't miss it. See if you can follow me now. So the first one. Jesus creates from a little lunch, a little boy's lunch, abundance of food for the crowd. And John reports that there are leftovers after everyone is done. How much? How much? Twelve baskets full. Why twelve? I don't think that number is random, do you? <laughs> Why do you think at the end of chapter 6, Jesus three times, three times refers to his disciples as the 12, the 12, the 12. Think about it, 12 baskets of leftovers, 12 disciples, servants of the Lord who had been giving out, giving out, giving out in ministry, serving people, expending energy to care for all the folks, Perhaps to the point of being worn out and exhausted. Jesus, so many needs, so many people, Jesus. Could it be that providing a full basket of leftovers for each disciple, that the Lord was trying to communicate something very special to them? Hey, fellas, I'm the bread of life. Not only for all the crowds, but for you. I see your work, I see your labor and toil and weariness in serving me. You fed my sheep, now I'm going to feed you. I'm going to provide for you. Take heart, I won't forget you. I, I will come to you, guys, in your hour of emotional depletion, of your emptiness, and fill you with my supply. I'm enough for you, my faithful servants. Do not seek solace elsewhere. When you're feeling empty and drained and depleted, don't look around for some quick pleasure hit to make you feel better. After giving out to others everything that you had, I will make sure 
that your own soul is filled. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that the sweet of our Lord? And then think about that other story that seems to me to be kind of out of place. But John included it anyway. That story about Jesus coming to them miraculously in the stormy night. Walking on water to to get to them. Getting into their boat, those same twelve. Is it possible that once again he was reassuring them of something very special? Hey guys, in your darkest hour, and there will be some, in your darkest hour, when you're feeling alone and abandoned, you ever been there? When you're fearful, when the storm's raging all around you, when you're being tossed and turned and seems like all hope is lost, I will do whatever it takes to come to you. I'll walk on water if I need to. I'll come and draw near to you and I will get in your boat. And that's a good day when Jesus is in your boat with you. Trust me, guys, I'll get in it with you and then I'll get you where you need to be quickly. I believe that's what this is all about. Jesus saying to his chosen servants, you can count on my special provision when you feel like you've got nothing left to give and you're empty. And you can count on my presence too. I'll move heaven and earth to get to you. When you're feeling fearful and alone and abandoned, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Isn't this beautiful? Some of you needed to hear that today. I needed to hear that today. I've experienced this at two in the morning. Dark nights. Looks like there's no hope. Jesus met me in those moments. It's beautiful. Thank God for Jesus. And then I think we could also say that this all turned out perfectly because through it, Jesus' followers, number four, were reminded that even when it seems like the devil is winning, God is greater than the devil and he is working to accomplish his purposes, mysterious though they may be. Because on that day, it sure was looking like the Jesus movement was dead in the water. His poll numbers were down, the crowds were dwindling, down almost nothing. And of the the handful that remained with him at the end of the day, it says one of them was a mole, a devil. It sure looked like the devil was winning. Like maybe it looks to you these days when you think about what's going on in your family. It looks like the devil's winning. Or what's going on at work, at the office, or campus where you're at, or in our country. When it looks like the devil is winning, it feels like that, and our guy is losing, and maybe we should bail out, or go get drunk, or go find another person to follow. But in the midst of what appeared to be utter defeat, Jesus stands there, And calmly asserts, my father is sovereign over all. Though there's been a mass defection here today, God will preserve a remnant of true believers in me like he always has. All who were meant to come to me will come. Those who weren't won't. Even having a phony, devilish disciple among us 
It's also orchestrated by my Father for the ultimate good of my people. Church, this is where our focus needs to be when it looks like the evil one is beating us and our cause is failing, right? God is on the throne. God is still God. He is sovereign over all. His purpose will stand. He will not be thwarted. And he will accomplish everything that's in his heart to accomplish. That's where our focus needs to be. Clinging to that. When it looks like the devil is kicking our backsides. Well, there's a lot more here. But let me just mention one final way that this day could be seen to have ended perfectly, just as God planned. Through it all, number five, Jesus was continuing to bring people to a point of decision. He was always doing that, wasn't he? Bringing people to a point of decision regarding who he was, his identity, and enabling them, giving them the opportunity to confess their faith. Listen in again on that final scene. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Verse 68, Simon Peter speaks up. (laughs) Just like him, isn't it? Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that compels me to ask you today, If everybody else turns away from Jesus, will you turn away also? If Pastor Steve defects, Pastor Brian goes AWOL, says we're done with this Jesus thing, or people in your life that you respect and revere and have been examples and influences in your life, if they turn away from Jesus Christ, will you turn away too? And if you do, where are you going to go? To whom will you go? If you choose to not seek the truth from him, who are you going to seek it from? That's an important question. And it's a question that demands a choice. Yes, let's be honest today. Jesus says some very perplexing things. Very mysterious, very confounding. Yes, he says some offensive things. And maybe you're sitting here today, you listen to his words and you're offended. But I would ask this. Where else are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go to obtain eternal life other than Jesus? Where are you going to go to find forgiveness of all of your sins if you don't go to the one who ended up going to Calvary's Mount and dying for your sins? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go for the power to be raised from the dead one day? Where are you going to go to discover the truth about life and death and eternity if you don't go to the one who's been there? Where are you going to go for meaning and significance and purpose and direction in this life? Where are you going to go for comfort in your darkest hour? Where are you going to go for satisfaction of your soul's deepest cravings? Where are you going to go? I pray that the response given by Peter resonates in the deepest part of all of our souls today. And beyond that, echoes throughout the world, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
There is no one else. You have the words of eternal life. We will not turn away, no matter if everybody else leaves. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. No turning back. To whom shall we go? Well, together, as a congregation of people who are seeking to follow Jesus, be faithful to him, we're going to go to Jesus once again today, and in a special way. Seems appropriate, doesn't it, after hearing Jesus' words about being the bread of life and eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that we participate together today in communion in the Lord's Supper, in His table. Because of His words that we heard today about the reality of being one with Him through eating that which symbolizes His flesh and drinking that which symbolizes His blood, I'm praying that we're going to partake of communion today with a a, a fresh sense of all that Jesus wants to be for us and in us. Don't you get the sense that He wants more than just to be like the name at the end of a prayer that you say, I am the bread of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. I want to be in you. I want to be your life. I want to be consumed by you and consume you. That's what he's saying. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes if you would and let me pray that the Lord will come to us as we come to him in this special moment. Lord, prepare our hearts now for this. You who set your face like a flint towards Calvary's mountain, you who did not turn aside even at the prospect of being sin for us, we want to remember you now these next few moments. Enlarge our vision of who you are, Jesus. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's Word and seek to know Him better through the Gospel. Our prayer is that the Gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the Word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.